Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world around us, but how, what, and why we can be more than what we experience up until now. Let's examine what it is that we believe, for this is a time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room. Sarav, why don't you tell us all about it? Yeah, we do have a great chat room, and... uh conversation is wonderful in fact one of the guests today is from the chat room so the chat room is very very lively today do come join us that's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat get some real insights into our fabulous guest today we actually you know very often a guest will come onto the show um they learn about the chat room Mm -hmm. they begin to interact with the people in the chat room and then they become a part of the chat room as well. So, and, and we've had, as you point out, uh, we've had some really great people in there that have later become guests on our show, for that matter. That is true. Including today. All right. In the spotlight this week, we turn our attention to on-off switches. Perhaps today's science fiction and tomorrow's science We're all familiar with simple toggle switches that turn things on and off, from our household light switches to those small slide buttons on the bottom of children's toys. We learn not just what a switch is, but how to use it, and we do so very early in life. Switches are so common that we take them for granted. We have small switches and large ones, And we turn off and on single light bulbs and an entire electrical grids. So what's the deal about on-off switches? Well, there are many things we have come to take for granted. Among them is human consciousness. We can easily imagine, thanks in large to our entertainment industry, turning a robot on and off. We can even imagine shutting down the Terminator with some remote switch that halts him immediately in mid-stride. But how about shutting down a human in the same way? Have you given that thought? This month, we learned that science has discovered the on-off switch for human consciousness. One moment you're conscious and the next, well, the switch was pulled and you're not. It appears that a single area in the brain, the claustrum, may orchestrate consciousness. Now, at least for the moment, the switch is only accessed by zapping the claustrum with electricity. For this, you must at least be connected to some electrical apparatus for it to succeed. As such, there is some comfort in knowing this isn't likely to be done without your awareness. However, notice that I began this paragraph with, quote, for the moment, close quote. That little caveat is an important one. For you see, there's a great deal of research today in the area of remote 
brain control. For example, monkey brains and their subsequent behavior have been controlled with blue light. In 2012, researchers reported successfully using optogenetics to alter monkey behavior. Now, optogenetics is the combination of genetics and optics to control well-defined events within specific cells of living tissue. It includes a discovery and insertion into cells or of genes that confer light responsiveness. It also includes the associated technologies for delivering that light deep into an organism and for targeting light sensitivity to cells of interest as well as for accessing specific readouts or effects of this optical control. So a technology, something perhaps like optogenetics, and there are more, may one day facilitate the shutdown of human consciousness that of an individual or a group. This is worth thinking about, despite its Orwellian overtones. I, for one, can easily imagine researching the development of this sort of remote control technology under the guise of protection and national security. After all, with this capability, you could shut down criminals, terrorists, and more, thereby minimizing security risks to all. Why, you could shut down an entire mob at once, freezing them in their tracks. And hey, if you're one of those zombie apocalypse followers, what a perfect weapon. You could shut down an entire zombie pack in a single light flash. All you'd have to do is use an implant, one such as that required coming up for medical tagging. An add-on, say... Your medic add on to your medical tag, say, uh, you know, this little light switch, and voila. Well, science moves on, and where it goes is often both exciting and fearful. Let me leave you with a quote from the article Consciousness on Off Switch Discovered Deep in Brain, published by New Scientist, and I quote. When the team zapped the area with high-frequency electrical impulses, the woman lost consciousness. She stopped reading and stared blankly into space. She didn't respond to auditory or visual commands, and her breathing slowed. As soon as the stimulation stopped, she immediately regained consciousness with no memory of the event. The same, same thing happened every time the area was stimulated during two days of experiments, close quote. Now ponder that one. Your thoughts on it, Ravinder? You know, I have to confess, when you were starting this piece, I was just anticipating the joke, wishing that I had an on-off switch, too, um, that you could use. But no, in all seriousness, I mean, it sounds like a far-fetched science fiction Make plot. a great book, wouldn't it? It, it absolutely would, you know. I mean, what could the powers that be do if they could just turn us on and off whenever they wanted to? Or, you know, I mean, it would. But they you would know, bring no, wait, it out wait, wait a minute, you know, if they had this technology, and and, and we do have this uh, medical tagging required in mm -hmm. uh, the Affordable Health Care uh, Bill, when that happens, we'll see. But, it, you know, if they had this technology, and and they could you know, put it into that medical tag, 
they'd certainly tell us about it. I mean, they wouldn't do that kind of thing covertly now, would they? Hide and watch. <laughs> they'll do whatever they can, whenever they can, as long as they can get away with it, and then they'll deny it. And that's the truth of the matter. Oh, you sound like, uh, I don't know. You, you, Tinfoil hatter. All right, I'm going to leave it alone. <laughs> okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of recognizing the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week we hosted two wonderful guests. In our first hour we spoke with Jason Pageant about his life as uh, the documented case of acquired Savin syndrome with mathematical synesthesia. In the second hour, primatologist Franz Stowall, named by Discover as one of 47 all-time great minds of science, presented a compelling case that human morality is not imposed from above, but instead comes from within. According to Dewall, moral behavior does not begin and end with religion, but is in fact a product of evolution. Robert wrote, I was blown away by your show today. Thanks to both of your guests, I was so thoroughly intrigued by everything said that it was the only thing I could talk about all day. Richard wrote, too cool that Eldon has DeWall on his show. Good job, Eldon. Way to keep the conversation moving. Franz does not give long answers. Very satisfying show. Eldon had to stay on his toes. Franz DeWall is a vast storehouse of deep insights into animal, our behavior. Well, thank you, Richard, and the cool goes to you for finding DeWall's book and suggesting him for our show. Mark wrote, great guest today. Thanks, Eldon and Raph, for the show and lively chat room discussion. Amy wrote, I have known about Savins for some time. I never thought to ask the question, where does this knowledge come from? Thanks for asking that one. We didn't get an answer, but like you have said in your books, sometimes the question is more important than the answer. Well, thank you, Amy. It is truly interesting question in my view. I mean, if you can somehow awaken mathematical genius in the brain, is this knowledge somehow stored in our DNA? Or are we accessing a universal consciousness? Or just what? It's like all the knowledge is somehow available in one sort of savant or another gives us a glimmer of this potential. All right, moving on. Clara wrote, your radio show is what radio should be. I gained so much from your shows. Thank you. Lori wrote, love the show on YouTube. Well, thank you, Lori, and for all of you out there. Uh, our YouTube channel is in the process of hosting all of our shows and much more, so check it out. Our channel is Progressive Awareness as one word, or just search my name on YouTube. Lisa wrote, I have purchased several of your products in the past and love them. I am about to run an ad for you in my newsletter, Health Tips Weekly. Well, thank you, Lisa. Our patented and talk programs continue to be the only scientifically proven technology of kind, and I never tire of hearing your success stories. Frank wrote, I listened to the Intertalk Serenity CD that came with a mind programming book for a couple of hours prior to a dental visit. I had three fillings, one of them quite deep, without Novocaine. I was calm and relaxed throughout the entire experience. I do that, too. Have you tried that, Princess? I mean, you know, we have the dental anxiety program. We have, you know... I've used power imaging so frequently that whenever I go to... in Whenever I'm in the dentist's chair and they start that horrible drill, I just go to my happy place that I've created from power cool. imaging. Cool, cool, good. 
Tong Road. I love the Intertuck product. Been using it for three years, and it has proven itself to me. Yeah, Blue Road, I am using the Intertalk program. Loss of a loved one, and I have felt much release in my life ever since I started listening to the CD. And Elizabeth wrote, Mr. Taylor, I love listening to your CDs, especially at night. I hit replay and snooze away. I cannot begin to tell you how your books and CDs have changed my life in such a positive way. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth. Well, and, and all of you. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show. Intuitive drawing as a path to self-discovery, conflict resolution, and much more. Intuitive, or what has also been called process art, drawing, paint, sculpture, and so forth, allows individuals to travel a private path where they can uncover images of their inner selves through the expression of their art. Intuitive art is thought to be a tool for self-understanding. Art of this form generally encourages play. The goal is not to make art for exhibition or to learn specific techniques, But rather, you know, the goal is about allowing oneself the space to be inside their art expression and process while locating the inner core of their creative self. I've played with this, and uh, I think you're going to find this to be a very valuable tool. Intuitive drawing and painting has emerged uh, to become one of our basic art therapies as well, Um, a therapy technique uh, that is used by clinicians um, around the world. So now our guest today is a favorite of mine, a friend, and she has been with us before. Elaine Clayton is an artist, author, former teacher, Reiki master, and intuitive reader. She is the author of Making Marks, Discover the Art of Intuitive Drawing, published by Beyond Words. Elaine focuses on art, visual imagery, and personal unconscious memory as a way toward intuitive healing and knowledge. In Making Marks, she shares a method of drawing that can support the creative, intuitive seeker, opening the participant up to transcendent experiences. Elaine also creates spirit paintings by commission, artworks done in meditation in honor of the subject, and her, uh, her, her work has involved drawing workshops at schools, libraries, museums, uh, and, and other creative outlets. Elaine's first book on intuition is Illuminara Intuitive Journal, and that's a great book. And since her 20s, she has been an author and illustrator of books for children. Elaine is illustrated for the New York Times and for authors such as Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley and Wicked author Gregory Maguire. Elaine also offers intuitive readings and Rocky sessions. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Elaine Clayton. Well, hello, Elaine. Uh, we must have a problem with the studio. I know she's there, I can, but I do not hear Elaine. Maybe the listening audience is hearing her. <clears throat> well, we're not sure of what the problem is, uh, but we'll have it fixed here real quick because we have a magic producer and 
And I can tell you, Kiera, who is our show producer, can touch things, and they just they turn to gold. So I'm <laughs> sure by now we have Elaine Clayton with us. Is that correct, Elaine? Can you hear me now? I hear you very well. I knew magic Yay. fingers would do the trick. <laughs> how are you today? I'm great. I was just thinking how much fun that chat room is. You know how much I've always loved it, and I got to pop in there a little bit before um, you know this moment. So if you're out there and you want to have some fun, go to the chat room. Cool. I love it. Let's let's start if we can by having you share with our audience a little about yourself. I mean, some of us know you, but most people catching this show are not likely to so you know where did you grow up uh, were you popular in school what were your childhood likes and dislikes indeed what did you plan to be when you grew up well that's a great question because there is there are a couple of things that you might find interesting um just in terms of like you know becoming aware of changing patterns you know and so what i think what happened with me is very much always drawing people when I was, you know, for uh, probably as soon as I could hold a crayon or a pencil. And so I loved drawing. I was born in Texas in a very small town, very small town, right on Route 66 in the Panhandle. And my dad was one of the few doctors for that whole entire region where there were a lot of farmers and people driving down Route 66. And it was an ideal sort of time, you know, it was sort of a magical little place then. And then we moved because my dad wanted to go into psychiatry. And that was hard for me because I think it was culture shock. You know, suddenly we were in suburbia. We were in Kansas. And, you know, I just really developed some uh, anxieties around school, um, around who I was and what my potential was. And before we moved to Georgia, I discovered... um, Profiles in Courage, right? Did you read right. Profiles in Courage? Yeah. I sure did. John yeah, because I loved reading about the Kennedys and, you know, um, it was I like history, so I think I was trying to understand what happened in the decade that I was born. And I really decided that in this move, reading that book in the car on the way from the Midwest over to the Southeast, that I would um, change you know, and really get brave and be things I wanted to be, like little things, like I had a friend who could do a backflip, and I wanted to do a backflip too, but I was too scared. So by the time I got to high school, and this was in Columbus, Georgia, I just hit the ground running, and I was doing backflips, and, you know, I guess you might say I was popular. I was a cheerleader, and I was even homecoming queen, and I never tell people that, but Lately, I started realizing, you know, it's probably the only time I'll ever get to wear a tiara, so I should maybe take out those old pictures or something. <laughs> but it, but I have to thank, you know, Profiles in Courage, because I really, it changed my attitude about myself, and I think that's what you help people do. Well, thank you. I'm just going to ask you, I mean, since you brought that up before we go on, uh, to you, define courage. What is courage? Well, let's see. I can define it for what it means to me, and I guess I suppose depending on the situation, maybe it means different things. Um, But I think it means having the ability to follow your willpower in some given situation or to even know your truth. You know, like remember um, the Cowardly Lion 
you know, mm-hmm. in Wizard of Oz. He doesn't yeah. have courage. He wants courage. And finally, and he's, and he's so passive and he's so frightened. And then when he um, realizes that he's angry, and I actually have a drawing in, in the, um, I did a meditation that's in the Making Marks book that, that made me think of the same thing, um, that he, he, he got angry and then he wasn't passive anymore. He he told the wizard that he was wrong. Do you remember that? You know, I mean, I prior to that, he'd run down the hallway and die, you know, he dove out the window and everything. And when he got angry and he got the willpower to assert what he thought his truth was, then he he realized that he had courage. So I don't know. There's there are probably other ways to define it, but I think that's one of the ways I would define it. See, and I I think I took from. Uh the the story Kennedy's story profiles and Curry's the notion that uh, you know courage was about daring to do what needed to be done or what you believed you could do but were afraid to do. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's you true. accept that? Okay. Let me ask you I this, do. Elaine. Now I know you're a very spiritual person, and I know spirituality enters obviously into your work and a little bit of a bio that I gave. You know, introducing you implies that. So were you raised in a religious environment? And if so, uh, did it have any bearing on who you turned out to be? Yes, religion is so important to me in that um, it de- definitely molded me. But I'm, an, I'm kind of a mongrel because my parents were both from long line of uh, Protestants. Right, so my dad's family was Methodist and things, and they were English. And my mother's side had been one of her grandfathers going back was John Endicott, so he was one of the, um, you know, Puritans who first came to America, and and so he would have been probably in that family line, Catholic, and then Church of England, and then Puritan, and then the fam- the Endicott line sort of became Quaker, and then I think they were a little bit like just Christian. They just identified as Christian, but they may have gone to a Baptist church or something. And then my mother converted to Catholicism, and she also loved Judaism. She just had a real rich appreciation for for both. And so I was raised Catholic, and in my own personal spiritual journey in my early 20s, it was a, it was a shock to me in a way, but I realized that there was more than... Than, and I'm not putting down Catholicism at all or, or religions, but I hit a point where I realized I had to go deeper in a way that was personal to me. And then I, for many years, developed kind of just uh, what I would say uh, personal spirituality um, of my own. And I and I also started to explore Judaism because I just I I don't know I think I always wanted to know why we weren't Jewish if Jesus was. You know, when I remember going to Mass and thinking something didn't seem right, you know, it just seemed like he was Jewish, but somehow now we weren't Jewish, and but we loved him. And so, you know, I think I'm kind of a bridge person in a way. Like, I, I like the way religion helps society um, form justice and mercy, and I like that religion can be something that grounds people and maybe helps people gather, but I'm also free spirit. I feel more spiritual, really, than religious with, you know, a capital R, I guess. But um, but I do love learning, and I especially do love learning the history. And, and right now I'm reading Constantine's Sword, which is um, 
about the relationship between Catholicism and Judaism. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever read that, but I love it. It speaks cool. to me a lot. Uh, okay, we've got a hard break coming up. When we come back from the break, I, I want to know about your early art. You say you was very young you started drawing people. Um, drawing these people, did that give you any insight with respect to what it is that you teach today with your art? You you tender that one. We'll come back to it after the break. We're speaking right. with Elaine Clayton about our intuitive side, creativity, and her new book, Making Marks, Discover the Art of Intuitive Drawing. You can learn more about her by visiting Illuminara, that's I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-R-A dot com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash, forward slash chat. I'll get my tongue during the break. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself, and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals, anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or pbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Together. 
the dice, it had to be The only one for me is you And you for me, so happy together So happy together Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Elaine Clayton about her new book, Making Marks, Discover the Art of Intuitive Drawing. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives, their life songs, if you will. This often provides some interesting insight into their lives. Now, we just played Elaine's first choice, Happy Together by the Turtles. So why is this song important to Elaine, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, I can tell you why it means so much. I had so much fun just now dancing around, listening to it. It made me so happy to hear it. Um, well, it reminds me, I wrote in the chat room this memory of um, when, you know, the, you know, we were in Texas, right, like I said, and my whole family, I have three brothers and three sisters, so we were all young enough to be at home then. It was kind of this period of time where we were all together, and my brothers had a band, and I think they called it the Blue Mist. And uh, I remember standing in their room when they were practicing with their friends who were in the band, too. And I think they played that song quite a lot. And I was holding the album, the Turtles album, and I just remember standing there holding it. And, you know, every time I hear it, it, it just reminds me of that wonderful time because only a few years later, you know, certain brothers were older and they were off to college or whatever. And then there's another thing that connects it, too, that, you know, memories building on each other a little bit. My, I have a brother who is a musician, and his name is um, Jory Clayton. And he, when he was younger, he was in um, doing, like, recordings for um, soundtrack stuff in Nashville and things like that. And he was at the Grand Ole Opry at one of the theaters playing in a band. And we went to hear him. And he asked me, is there anything you would like? us to play and I said happy together but I didn't think he would because it wasn't really kind of country-ish music you know so I didn't think he would but lo and behold they they announced that they were uh, going to play a song for Elaine and then they played that and it just it was just such a gift he gave me to do that I just felt really touched by that so I like that song well it's a happy dancing song that's for sure Ravinder was bouncing (laughs) all over her seat here (laughs) Yeah, uh, me well, too. we played it. So, all right, you know, before the break, I tipped you uh, what the question was. Um, when did you first discover that you could use art to dialogue with your own inner self? I think at a very young age, actually, because I, I don't know why, but I, I suspect that because there were so many of us and there was a lot of happy chaos, the way I felt better was I would sit in the middle of the room. I didn't go away from everyone, but I sat in the middle, like at the coffee table or something. And I would just draw. And I think that right away it was my way of um, having control over something that I had, you know, literally no control over having all these older siblings and a lot of activity. 
So I think that dialogue thing started really young. Um, and then I, I loved people. I loved watching people. You know, I felt like their facial features and things described, you know, something about their personality. And then I would look at furniture and things like that, and they were people too. You know, sort of everything looked like a type of person to me in some way, which might sound funny, but if you, if you play with that, um, you, you know, you might see it in things. Um, so I think I was capturing my own sense of the personality in life, you know, and, and just developing a way to view or a way to have some vision about features and light and shadow. And, yeah, I think it increased only as I matured, that, that so, awareness of a dialogue. So let me ask you this. I mean, uh, do you think you were shaping your personality or you were tapping into something, uh, which was which was happening, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, what a wonderful thing that is to discover. So, what do we come already fully, in essence, who we really are as a soul, and then in our human body and in our human developing personality and body, do we get to that essence or let that essence come through, or? Is did we come here for the purpose of experiencing a 3D reality in order to add to whatever our soul essence is? I don't know. Could be both. Could be both. Huh? What right. do you think? Uh, I think it is both. I think it is indeed yeah. both. You know, I, I uh, yeah. Well, we we could get into that, but we forget about your book, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> Before we go any further, however, I would like you to define, you know, some terms for us. Um, I love your book. Uh, you know that. Thank you. Uh, you discuss, you know, things like intuitive knowing. Uh, and, and you basically kind of set it out as, you know, kind of knowing that transcends our ordinary conscious awareness. Flesh that out for me before we start down the path of, of, um, how we're going to use intuitive knowing to um, know ourselves better. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what intuitive knowing is for me is a sense and a, an awareness that isn't only just instinct, although instinct and intuition may be very intertwined. I mean, you wrote about that in, I believe, you know, about, uh, in particular about instinct and intuition. And, and certainly the only way to really get at either would be to have, as you said, you know, to, in, in that book, to have that dialogue with the self, right? But I feel like in, the way I experience intuitive knowing is that when I have that dialogue and when I trust it, sometimes I seem to be able to be aware and to actually feel that I know what was best for me or what was not safe for me or something that I couldn't possibly have known. Um, it may be a synchronicity. I'm not sure, but I know that you get sort of in this zone where there is knowledge there, and it is valuable knowledge. Um, it is. It is. Uh, it's also kind of exciting and fun. Now, I don't know if I verbalized that very well for you just now. I, I, but I, I, you know, I, I think you did, but it, it causes me to to want to ask you something else. Okay, and it's okay. a little bit of an aside, but. A week ago, we had uh, Jason Patchen on the show. Jason is uh, an acquired savant. There's something that's pretty rare. There are like 30 of them, you know, in history. Mm -hmm. um, the guy is an ordinary individual. He's not very good at math. Uh, he loses consciousness. 
and he's suddenly a mathematical savant, which, you know, kind of begs a question. Um, is, is, in your opinion, do we have all this knowledge available to us when it's just in areas of, of our conscious or in area, I, I hate to say brain, but in areas mm-hmm. of mind that we just have not accessed or is, is this, I mean, what is your theory about where does that information come from? Well, I love playing with this. Remember when I used to say, oh, Eldon, I want to tell you about the kaleidoscope. Remember, I kept calling it the kaleidoscope, and it was like right. the vision of um, absolute blissful to behold, but it's like this geometric divine arrangement of everything, and it changes just the way it does sort of in a kaleidoscope. I feel that it's quite possible that that all of the vastness and the constantly changing and adding on to information of the universe probably is accessible to us, but maybe we don't, maybe we're not aware that we, first of all, we're definitely not aware that we could do that, and maybe it's not always best for us for some reason in the process that we're in as humans, but we might have glimmers of of it. And, you know, like what you just said, you read every now and then about someone who they they knocked their head and then they could speak French fluently or something crazy like that. Mm-hmm. You, you do wonder, um, you know, if, if it's all there for us to access, and first step would be to believe that it's true and possible, and then the next would be to become consciously um, open to and able to accept and receive it. You, you know, they, there's a lot of people that talk about uh, the veil, Uh, You know, that which, you know, uh, is drawn over us when we incarnate in a lifetime. So we can use that lifetime and and use Uh it for, you know, the purposes that we've come here, whatever those lessons might be, and not Uh be familiar with where we came from, you know, Uh uh, whatever you want to refer that. Do you, I mean, does this, in your view, is this kind of like the veil? Because you gave a very good example, and there are many of them. There was a woman not long ago who woke up from anesthesia uh, and was completely fluent in German, and no one in her family, no one anywhere in her history, she was a very young girl, um, had spoken any German whatsoever prior to her being anesthetized uh, for this surgery. She'd never said a word of German. So, I mean, it kind of does suggest that mm-hmm. this knowledge is is there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so interesting. And, and, and we're tapping into it. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and then, then I start feeling like I want to go there that way because I do think that's true. I really do because um, it's like the Akashic Record. Everything that ever, was ever said, written, or done is there. It's available. It's imp- it's, it's there, but you can also change it and play with it, and there is no real time the way we experience past, present, and future here. It's not necessarily always that way in other dimensions or whatever. I start really playing with that, and then I'm laughing, thinking that someone else might say, you know, that another entity, you know, took her body or something, the girl that woke up speaking German, which, of course, is a terrible thing to say because it would make the parents really wig out. To think that you know, and and but I don't know. I think it's so a mystery. You're talking I, about possession, okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, what, there's a word for it. There's a word for it where you've been replaced by another entity. Someone in the walk chat room in. might. Yeah, walk in. Walk in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because why? You know, you if, yeah. 
Yeah, like if she, what was the purpose for her to return? And, and it connects up then with um, near-death experiences. So she may not remember, or at some point she might remember what, why well, she came back. Well, in this instance, it was a relatively simple surgery, so I don't think it was a walk-in and or. But, you know, the, 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 the idea still sits there. And the reason I wanted to kind of flesh this out with you is because you do two things. One, you teach people especially in making marks, how to do, how to reach into their own intuitive self. But you also do these intuitive drawings. And these, the way you, my personal experience, because you've done a couple with me now, um, the drawings reach past what we would think of as normal intuition they reach deep into a spiritual realm they reach maybe into what you might think of as a collective unconscious or an akashic record they they reach beyond that they go to guides to masters and and so i wanted to kind of flesh this all out and Mm -hmm. and ask you this question is that in the broad sense all within the scope in your view honestly for each individual to be able to tap at this level of knowledge, this kind of information, using the techniques that you produce or that you you guide us through in making marks. Well, I have to believe that the that you know each person is limitless in their capacity to grow and to know, right? I can't say, no, that's only for some people. I really think that, that it may be different person to person because each of us is so unique. And we do have different needs at different points in time. So there might be a point in time where someone just can't access that because they're, they're learning something else that they need to or, or whatever. But I would still say there is that infinite, all-knowing part of them that is one with God that is, beyond me to even do anything but just honor, you know. And so I, I really, I don't, and I don't know wh- why it happens in those drawings. And I don't know, you know, if it, everyone, I guess, experiences it differently, depending on what they need at the time that the meditation is done and all that. But all I know is that I just, I just love the process because, you know, the whole idea is to teach people or to support people in, you know, in having their own access to whatever it is they need when they need it in terms of, you know, growing and realizing their their capacity to thrive, you know. I, I just feel like um, the, the whole reason why I wanted to do that book, and, and I don't know why it comes through in drawing, I, I guess my, my answer in a way would be it just is available, probably everywhere all the time, but we just don't realize it. You know, the ability to somehow tap into the knowledge that we need at the moment or that we need in the big picture. I like that answer. And I also like this to to, to look at this as a tool and and a a really, you know, a great tool for how you can reach toward that. So let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. In a therapeutic sense, is it the process itself, the actual act of making art, that soothes our nerves and settles our brains, or is it the freedom of expression that it allows us, or perhaps the metaphor and the symbolism um, 
that that we access the unconscious, you know, or maybe the pride or sense of accomplishment we take in the final product. What do you think is the therapeutic value that is obtained from this? I mean, what is the mechanism? Mm-hmm. Well, I think let's look at ourselves as primitive for a minute, like the most, you know, like the earliest people. For some reason, they had this compelling urge to make marks, and they started doing it, and we have you know, those cave paintings and things like that. There's something about a gesture. We're, we're 3D. We have a body. We make gestures with it. And when a child is born, they, they it's not even a question. They're just learning how to do that. They're constantly exerting like that, um, moving things around and being delighted by the fact they can do that. And I think that what happens then, we get conditioned in other ways and, you know, along the way, and we forget that that there is this, Thing that we can do that's very simple and innate for us, and that's just making a mark. And once we start doing that, and, and this, you're right, this is a tool where it's drawing, and I think it is one of the most basic common human urges just to draw. Um, it Once you get into that again, like a young child uh, is able to without any interruption, um, then the flow, almost like the recognition of, uh, maybe who we are, you know, comes through. And I think it, it is a way of releasing tension, you know, just physical human tension. Um, it's also a way of, like you said, having pride in creating. You know, we create. Anytime you take a blank surface and you make a mark on it, you've altered it. You have created something. And maybe it reminds us that we have the power to do that in other areas of life. So I think that it, the therapeutic part of it is kind of all of it. But it is a way of, it is using an artistic process. This, this intuitive exploration is a way of using an artistic process, not necessarily for art, not to be analyzed either. I, w- I wouldn't want to say that you, you analyze people or yourself in this. It's more that you discover who you are and maybe you get more in touch with what truth may be there for you waiting for you to, to re uh, acquaint yourself with or to realize again in a new way. And it, and it's a, it's a combination of all. For me, it, all in one realm, imagination, intuition, creativity, empathy, that's all in one realm, if you ask me. Cool. Okay, Elaine, you, you heard the setup piece, and, and I think I got it right. Uh, this kind of drawing does not require, you know, art training. It's not, as you point out, you're not really criticizing it. You're not evaluating it, examining it. You're allowing it to just kind of express yourself. Uh, so how much art training have you literally had? Um, well, I, um, you know, all the personal uh, drawing that I did and the just regular training you would have as a child taking art classes. And I officially took my first real art class. It was at the Nelson Museum in Kansas City. And I, I loved it. I mean, I, even when they did a critique, the college kids from the Kansas City Art Institute ran that class. And I remember the moment where they would put the art up to critique it. And I didn't feel at all threatened. I don't know why, because I, I was in any other class you put me in probably terrified but I wasn't at all there, so it felt natural. And then, I don't know, I did other things artistically in high school. I, like I said, I liked doing things like drawing in the air with my body, kind of doing flips and things like that. I loved suspending myself in space, feeling like I was flying. 
But then I went to art school and uh, have a BFA in painting and drawing. And then I taught for a long time and as artists in residence in public schools and then in private schools or independent schools, I'd rather say, um, you know, and actually using art and, and art processes in the regular classroom. And then I went back to graduate school. So I have a master's um, in fine arts from the School of Visual Arts. And that is uh, that class was called um, Visual Essay. So it was about telling a story with imagery. And I was really into editorial art because by then I was already getting published doing children's books, you know. So mm-hmm. um, I've, I've had a lot of training, but I, I just recently I looked at some art that a student had done. It was it was my friend's uh, teenager, and the art she did probably before she had any kind of formal training was so amazing. And it, and the art she does after training is too. But there was something about her personality or. I don't know. I don't. I don't think you need training necessarily, you know, to uh, have a beautiful piece of art. I really don't. Something comes through, you know. So I don't think you have to have artistic training. I just think that for me, cultivating what felt like right for me, you know, um, my creativity was what I chose to do, um, you know, in a formal way. It. it- but it sounds it's kind of unfair with all that training for you to, you know, to tell us. Well, you don't need any training at all. You can just kind of scribble. I, I mean, I look at what you do, and then you know I try and do something. And it is, it is. I have to admit, it is very difficult to try and make a story out of some of the doodles that I might doodle because the doodles are so silly. My left brain interferes. Listen, when we come back, I'm going to ask you, how do we get the left brain out of the way? But we have a heartbreak. (laughs) Again, if you would like to know more about Elaine, visit her site or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. All right, we have a film featuring some of our guests' work for you during the break. You can watch it in our chat room. So if you're not already there, now is the time to join in the fun. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Elaine Clayton about her delightful new book, Making Marks, Discover the Art of Intuitive Drawing. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. They limit the friends page, so please join me on the fan page today. Now, Elaine, we just played your second musical choice, The Walker by <laughs> Fitz and the Tatrams. So tell us, why is this music so meaningful to you? Okay, well, it's not so much the lyrics, but I do love that message of, um, you know, walk to the beat of your own drum, right? Really? And it kind of ties in with your question before the break, which was how do we get how do we get the left brain out of the way? Right. Uh, that side of the brain that wants to control everything. And so this was just, you know, one of the songs that came around, um, I don't know, in the last few months. And I thought, yeah, that, that'll get me in a great mood when I go to the studio because uh, I use music a lot and I have I'm kind of moody. So the other day I started listening to Where Corals Lie by Dame, uh, sung by um, Dame Janet Baker. So mm-hmm. I have moods, you know, but, but I love mostly to get into the happy, free dance mood. And that's another one that just, you know, it's not the lyrics, really. It's just the feeling of freedom dancing. So it's that, that song is all about just feeling. Well, yeah, and it says, feel it in my soul, and, you know, it just, it, it, the, the tones, I guess, and the beat make me happy, and I want to get into that go, place. If it sounds good and it feels good, it's got to be music, right? Yeah, it must be, you know? Yeah, especially if it sounds good. All right, so are you trying to tell me that the way to get the left brain out of the way is get myself some, you know good dance music, something that I can't stand still to, and and then doodle? Right, so you were dancing during that song, weren't you? Well, I wasn't dancing, but I wasn't sitting still, <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I think that's one way. Now, that's the way I do it, and I just share things that work for me, but somebody else might have another great idea, you know. I think music, well, first of all, all of the senses offer up so much. You know, um, you've written a lot about how strong memories are. We either use them to feel good things, you know, to remember things that make us happy, or they own us, you know, the the things that hurt us and that caused us injury or, or we just can't get out from under. And I think all of the five senses activate the memories that we have. But for me, when I go into my studio... I don't have to listen to music like this before I do a, an intuitive reading. That's a different mood, really. But before I get in the place where I can make art, I have to be, I have to have that thing that you've described before, too, about, you know, forgive, forgiveness, letting go, not letting the memories define who you are. I have to let go. I have to feel free. I have to be happy about all the good things. And that's just, music can do that for me. Okay, well, you, know, you say you when you go to your studio, you're a moody person. So you go to your studio, do you ever put on different kind of mood music, or, or do you always yeah. try? You do, okay. So Well, you know. I, I do, but let's say, 
Well, yeah, because the last few days, over and over, I've been, you know, go to YouTube and, and type in um, Where Corals Lie. It's this beautiful operatic piece. London, uh -huh. London Symphony Orchestra, I think. Okay. Um, well, it was really speaking to me this past week. I just w was obsessed with it. Um, but I wasn't really making a new painting this week either. I, you know, you, creativity comes in cycles sometimes. So I, I guess I'm just trying to be in touch with my feelings as I respond to whatever each day requires of me or whatever I have, decide to do with each day. And um, for getting into art and getting into a good place to be free, to not block myself, it, it wouldn't be usually a sad song or a somber song. Not usually, sometimes maybe, but because mostly I, I feel if I'm happy, then I'm really weightless. If Sometimes I might want to do a piece of art about how sad I am about something, and, and that's a powerful thing to do because when you're finished making that art about it, you're, you're past it and you've created upon a memory, so you've changed it a little. But you could also get stuck that way having to create only out of misery. I mean, novelists and uh, artists often, that's what's made them great, you know, and so it's hard to let go of misery then because that's where your art is, you know. So I try not to let misery, though, do that to me. I, I don't want to live that way, so... Um, you know, I try not to let that happen. I try nice. to create create out of a happy place. You're you were actually you know answering my next question. There are so many artists that uh, you know they they have to have a mood set before they create. I, I think particularly of poets, and you know, liquor seems to always enter that role too. The the poet mm -hmm. uh, or the mystery writer, uh, they have their wine. Uh, do mm -hmm. you find yourself creating with that influence as well? Like with a bottle of wine over here? Yeah. Um, yep. No, no, I don't. I mean, I, when I was uh, younger, I was allergic to alcohol. That doesn't mean I haven't, you know, had plenty of drinks at times and things like that. But um, I can't do, I don't want to block, I don't want my body, my body chemistry to block spiritual feelings, I guess spiritual elation I don't think comes from beer or wine or even a really good gin and tonic, which I like. Um, I just think that for me, um, I want to keep being conscious, you know, so uh, I don't know. I don't think that you, and I don't want to be sad. I've spent plenty of years, you know, um, working out sadness and using uh, art process to do that, you know, so at this point, um, no, I don't, I don't think I could really get in here and make anything very good if I right. was tipsy. So we know that you are, you're sober when you do these drawings. Or these yeah, yes, I am. People. You're the sober artist. I'm, well, I'm weird enough already as it is, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I never don't. even smoked a joint. I've never even done that. And partly the reason why I haven't is because I had older teenage brothers and sisters during the hippie days you know and you know they would have they would babysit for us sometimes and it was like oh god i don't want to ever do that and so in my dad's uh, specialty he helped start the field of psychiatry that is uh, addictionology uh -huh. so um i just and i'm i'm way out there with my mind and you know people have always said you're weird you know so 
I don't. I just probably don't need it. Um, but I, I'm not saying I. I mean, the people, the poets. You know, you're thinking of or writers like Hemingway or somebody you know who would be intoxicated or Pollock before he would do his art. So, you know, I'm not judging anyone who does that because they're geniuses, you know, and, and maybe I'm in here sober, but, you know, it can't be compared to writers and artists like that. You know, I don't really know if that, what their stories are personally, you know, whether or not but, they were self-medicating or what, but. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I don't think there's anything weird about you. I've never tried a joint either. I've never had an inclination to deal in any of and, and I don't, you know, my friends, maybe they lie to me, but the vast majority of them are just like you and I, okay? Yeah. That's that's something else. All right, let's, let's do this. Let's talk more about the intuitive nature of your art, all right? We okay. all interpret our experiences through our own special lenses, you know, our personal mm-hmm. lenses. And we tend to colorize, you know, our perspective according to our expectations and beliefs. Have you found that as you work with intuitive art, this cognitive bias influences the material you produce? Or are you less likely to have it influence you as a result of years of doing art? and? Well, I think you can't escape perception. You can't escape who you are. But I wouldn't get locked into it. Like, for example, let's say I draw something in. Um, well, my promise to myself and to like, a client, let's say, if I meditate on behalf of someone and do a, an intuitive stream drawing for them, my promise is what I see and what I see most predominantly especially, I will share with you. I promise to do that. But there's a million ways to see anything. The beauty of it, of all of this, of us as people and um, of what we create is that we each do have our own perception. And, and, and we have many perceptions and layers and layers. And so I feel like it's like, in a way, it's like reading a dream because dreams, we have perceptions about dreams, too. And, and then we... Let's say, you know, you go deeper into what the dream imagery was and you start to sense and feel other things. But I don't think we can escape um, but being biased, if you use that word, because we are who we are and we see what we see. But you can, you can try to keep expanding instead of saying, no, it's an apple. It's an apple. I see an apple. Well, could it be a balloon upside down with the, you know, apple cord as the string? No, it's an apple. You know, I wouldn't, I would say, yeah, it could be any, yeah, let's turn it this way and that way and see it. Or let yourself come up with other ways of looking. Well, I that's was thinking what I, more. That's what I do to myself. Right. I was thinking more of the meaning or the symbolism that's behind the eye. You know, whether it's an apple or it's a balloon. Now, that's, that's. Oh, one right. Thing. But then, you know, so what does that apple mean or, or, or what does that balloon mean? I mean, and, and, okay. and aren't we predisposed to see that? Go ahead. Well, let me give you a good example of a recent um, intuitive stream drawing reading. I saw on the far right side of the first view, which was past, present, future, I call it timeline or life experience line, I saw what looked to me like a penguin with a little egg, you know, right by it. And for me, an egg symbolizes a lot of things. Potential is one because it's like an egg is waiting to be hatched. The penguin, I said to myself, well, Father penguins take care of the eggs. So for me, when I share this drawing with this, 
client. I'm going to share my perception because that's all I have is to share the drawing and my perception. That's bringing my best self to it. And I'm just going to share with her that for me, what comes to mind and heart is a penguin is like, reminds me of the way fathers can take care of children because that's what they instinctively do. So I told her that and we, we went through the reading and Sure enough, an odd thing, her entire concern was about whether or not she should marry someone she's engaged to. He doesn't really like children. She didn't really have a father figure. It's one of the things that matters to her the most. And I thought, well, that's strange and beautiful that I shared that. I'm glad I shared that what came to me because it did have meaning for her. And then later, actually, I think later that afternoon or the next day, she emailed me and said, actually, what I didn't tell you is that I have penguins all over my house on pillows and curtains and things because they symbolize for me the same thing that they symbolize for you. And I don't know why she didn't bring that up while we were talking, but we certainly went into that as, a, as the theme of her reading. And that, that really is a really clear example of just sharing what it means to me is okay. That's, that's how these readings work. I, if you were sitting with me, I would say, what does it mean to you when you look at it? And then we have each other, you know. But if the reading is for you and your honor, it, it doesn't stay trapped in what it means to me. It, it, there are millions of ways to look at it. So it's kind okay, of a living, breathing thing. Think about your book for a minute. Could someone take your book and, and go through the entire process and then turn around, do you believe and become an intuitive artist doing readings for others like you do? Well, I would I would love it if people found it that way and could do that. I, I think that I'm sharing it first and foremost just to share an intuitive process so that it might um, help others be empowered because everyone can close their eyes and draw, you know, and then look at it. We can all do that. We can all um, do that. So I think that... That it's just reminding people that they have that within them. And then if they feel like becoming a reader, if this is a process that takes them on to their path and that's part of it, then I think that would be, you know, beautiful too. Okay, they may now, just use it in other ways. I don't know. I have to ask you this one then, you know. Um, sometimes therapeutic practices backfire. Yeah, and art mm-hmm. therapy isn't, um, isn't an exception. It can lead people astray. It can convince them of something that they already believe. You know, it mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it serves to be um, that convincer uh, mm-hmm. that causes people to do things, and uh, and maybe you know they're not the right things for them to have done. So, what 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 precautions do you have for how you interpret information? Yeah, I think that's really important to me. You know, um, I mentioned before that I don't really see it. I don't. I my first major was going to be art therapy, and I actually have a brother who's an art therapist, and I love art therapy. But I think that this isn't therapy in that it doesn't seek to diagnose you. Uh, like I said, I'm not using it as a tool to analyze, judge. You know, I'm just actually using it to share my perceptions, you know, and the drawing process. And then hopefully it 
does mean something to another person, and then they take it and do what they will with it. I mean, if you became a reader, and I think, um, and you used this method, what I wouldn't want, and I go into this a little bit in the book, um, I wouldn't want someone to, and I, I actually wanted to say this more strongly in the book, but I was encouraged to be a little less uh, uh, direct or mean yeah, about it. Be almost, very direct but, for us. Well, I think that would be crushing, hurtful, and cruel for people to say negative things that will damage people forever, possibly, when they're vulnerable. For example, I would be, I would be so hurt and upset if someone took this method and they sat down with someone and they said, gosh, you know, you might be really ill because I see this weird spiral right here in the solar chakra part, you know, or... Um, um, looks like you were sexually abused, you know, just so insensitive, you know. I think that, that using it in a way that would in, in any way incite fear is not at all what I intend, and that, that isn't what I want to have happen. And so I, I, I didn't put it in here in this book as strongly as I really kind of wanted to, um, But I, because I've seen readers do that. Now, I think there are a lot of most readers are probably wonderful, but for fun, my whole adult life, I've tried different readers, you know, just to see what they might come up with. That's like almost a hobby or something. And the reason why I do these books on intuition is in part because I got off the phone once with a reader I had had one reading with in Washington, D.C., and I thought I would try her again. And, you know, she did the same thing twice, but she's very, very talented. She has an intuitive ability. But she'll say negative things and, and things that if you are vulnerable, it might be crushing to you. So, for example, she says something like, you know, your grandmother is trying to get a message through to you but can't. So I just sort of said, uh, so, yeah, I'm sure she'll find a way. You know, I mean, I just didn't let it stick, but I got off the phone thinking, that's not nice, you know. Um, or she might say you have negative energy somewhere. Well, if you're vulnerable or if you have a breakdown of some kind, that's a terrible thing to say to somebody because, oh, my God, what, where, negative, how, how do I get rid of it? You know, and then they're dependent. And you've heard of psychics. Like there was a case recently, I think down in Florida, a very intelligent, well-to-do executive, I think, but she lost her son, who was a child, and she went to probably, um, a, you know, a, a reader that had a good reputation for having gifts and ended up losing thousands of dollars. Why she had to give a lot of money to contact her son in heaven, I have no idea how that, how that evolved. But the, the reader was, you know, tried and found guilty, and, it, and it's awful to think that someone would get money out of someone when they're grieving and dealing with probably the worst thing that could happen to them and losing a child. So, I, yeah, I would hate it if anything that I'm doing with this book could in any way be used in a negative way like that. That's, does that answer your question? Well, more than answers, and I didn't mean to suggest <laughs> that someone would use your book to, to do something negative. I, I guess it's, you know, there are a number of real-life cases where the art of an individual has been examined after they've committed mm -hmm. some heinous crime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a school teacher, you know that you are always on alert for some of that uh, kind of art. And, and that's well, kind of more art therapy. You would be today. And, yeah. it, you know, and so 
Uh, well, listen, We again, we have a hard break coming up. When uh, when we come back from the break, let's discuss that. H- have you ever encountered that sort of art expression in your work, whether you were doing a reading or you were teaching someone how to, you know, how to use this uh, intuitive method um, and so forth? That'll be your question after the break. That is plus or minus your special chant. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to take your comments and questions. Uh, Indeed, if you'd like uh, Elaine to give you a reading, I think we can impose upon her for that, too. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself? past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you, I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Now, back to the show. And welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Elaine Clayton about her delightful book, Making Marks. We will take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions of our guests or would like a reading, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. But first... Prepare yourself for a special treat. Elaine has requested the opportunity to chant her third musical choice. So, Elaine, please tell us about what we are about to experience and the significance of this Aramaic prayer to you. Well, I have wanted to, for so, 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 so long, I've wanted to learn more about the Hebrew Bible um, I always wanted to be able to speak Hebrew, Aramaic. It's just all so fascinating to me. And um, th- I don't, you know, I need to know a little more about this. This is the Hatzikadosh, and it's, um, it is very ancient, but I don't know exactly how old it is. If you're Christian, you might say, or you wonder if Jesus said this actual prayer. If you're Jewish, then you just learn it because it's uh, a major part of um you know, the prayers that said at Shabbat, um, both um, Friday evening Shabbat and Saturday morning Shabbat. Um, and it's about praising God. I mean, it, it's basically um, in the translation, blessed, praised, honored, exalted, extolled, glorified, adored, and lauded be the name of the Holy Blessed One. It's basically, there isn't even a song that could express the holiness. And uh, I just think it's pretty beautiful. Well, are you ready to share it with us? Yeah. Do you know it? Um, want, to, want to chant along with me, Eldon? No. <laughs> no, no. Did I ever okay. tell you the story about when I was going to be a singer? So, no. Thank you. No. Right okay. Well, and um, now there's an amen sort of in the middle. So um, that doesn't mean that when I say amen, you think it's over, but it's not. And if anyone out there knows it, I hope they will chant along with me. Yit kadal, yit kadashemay rabba, 
Bialma divurach hirute viam lich malchute. Bechayachon uvyamechon uvchaye. The Kobayit Yisrael. Bagala, bagala, uvisman kharis. Viimuru, amen. Yeheshme rabba mavorach. Leolam alume lamaya. Yisbarach, yisbarach, vi ishtabach, vi par, vi it raman, vi it nafte, vi it hadar, vi it hale, vi it halal, shemed kudashabarichu. Leolam min kol barkata, vashirata, tushbachata venechemata, Da mi ron bioma, vi imaru, amen. And you know, I love it because I had a dream once that tones and half tones healed the chakras, you know, the emotional centers of the body. And at the end of the dream, I was flown in with, with a guide or someone with me over a temple where they were chanting. And in the last part of the dream, a voice said, and the ancient scribes knew that the tones would emotionally clear people. So when I chant that or other chants, I'm feeling that, you know, I'm feeling cleared. Probably with all music, it happens. You certainly did it very, very well. And now we've recorded it. So maybe oh. we'll play it back in the future. Oh, cool. right. okay. <laughs> you know, Thank you for that. That was fun. Thank you for that. It's very, very refreshing. Uh, before the break, I'd asked you about the dark side of what you find mm-hmm. in art. But, um, you know, just quickly, if, have you encountered that in in the kind of intuitive writing or intuitive drawing that you're talking about doing, Elaine? Well, I haven't. You know why? Well, there is a light side and a shadow side, and I refer to it as the duality, you know, the dual nature of our life here on Earth. So whatever seems difficult or problematic has a beautiful bright side, and the beautiful bright side may have a complicated side. Um, But because I am drawing these for people, my perception and what I share tells you and me and anyone else just as much about me as it would about the person that I'm doing it for in a way, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's not a process where where I say um, someone draw and then I will tell you what's in it because that way then I might say, oh, you have a sharp thing there and that means you're angry, you know, or something like that. Well, that that I'm not doing because I don't want to be in a position to analyze someone else's drawing, but I will meditate for people and draw with them in my mind and heart, and it's like a prayer for me, and then I will share what I see, and if I see something sharp that does look angry, I'll say, I feel, you know, an anger kind of sharpness kind of or an assertiveness here, and does it mean anything to you, and then see if the person wants to go into that, but I... I really don't do anything where I'm kind of looking at someone's art and, and deciding that there's a red flag, you know. But I know what you're okay. talking about, you know, like okay. you've seen the, yeah. So let's let's do this. 
let's look at the advantages that a person could uh, could expect to get out of intuitive drawing. You know, let's assume that I, I, I've taken your book and I've, I've read through the book and now I'm going to try this. What is it I should expect and, and what is it that I might uh, be able to gain as a result? Okay. Well, I think the book serves two basic purposes, and the first would be just to get you to a place of freedom uh, while you're creative. So very simply, um, you know, making marks to feel good, to feel like you're in a flow, uh, just for that alone, because that alone is rewarding, you know, just being happy making marks in a freestyle way. And then the second part that someone might you know, uh, find valuable here in the book is to then gaze at what you've made, looking into the drawings and the marks that you've made to see if there is meaning there, intentionally drawing for the pursuit of insight or for the uh, urge to know and understand the self or the world better. Um, And so I think what you can come away with is hopefully discovering that feeling of freedom that you may have had a long time ago in childhood but sort of haven't had in a while. I mean, most people, when, when we talk, they'll say, I like to draw, but I just, I can't. I'm not good at it. You know, it's, it's very rare that people go home and draw a lot, you know, or they say, well, I doodle like when the boss is talking, you know, during the finance meeting or whatever. But, you know, people are doing, in a way, a, a free flow drawing when they are doodling like that they are in in a zone but this takes you to a place where you consciously draw to loosen up and then to become intuitive or to develop a sense of seeing that is your very own so hopefully yeah you you also teach that you know some like circles will have a meaning uh, to us uh, a triangle maybe another meaning i mean kind of a symbology um i mean that would be uh, for me to just sit down and do the drawings without having some kind of a symbolic reference it'd be kind of like reading a, a book when i didn't know the language wouldn't it well here's the thing you have your own language i don't have to you don't have to read jung or Freud or anything else to know what a triangle shape means to you. All you have to do and all I have to do is look at it and start to pay attention to it and have that inner dialogue with it and say, okay, if you have a triangle that has very sharp corners, how does it make you feel in comparison to this triangle that has very soft rounded corners? The lines carry knowledge, or they carry information. They carry personality. And all you have to do is be in touch with what they say to you by your own personal unconscious memory, by information that you've collected along the way, or by the impression you get right then at that moment. So, you know, some of what the book does is go into practicing seeing in a way that is a little bit like, you know, it's artistic vision because it's paying attention to how lines communicate to us contour lines especially um you know so a a straight line definitely says something different from a loopy loopy line you know most people will 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 know that instantly they'll they'll feel that instantly um or a jagged line you know with very dark uh pressure is different from a wispy you know sort of flowy line why is it well i don't know i guess because 
we assign meaning to to what we see, and then we associate it with things that we've experienced. So, so it's I try to learn a lot about symbology. I like to learn Native American symbology. I do love Jung. I do. I love all that. So I I want to keep learning symbols and universal you know meanings. But but this is really more about personal unconscious memory and tapping into what things mean to you personally. So there's no right or wrong. Yeah. So and in, then you in, develop your own language. So in theory, let's just pursue what you're doing. Let's let's say I've drawn a circle and I've drawn a triangle, and and I ask myself, you know, well the circle, you know, that, that makes me feel peaceful, and and but this triangle with these sharp edges, that's that makes me feel threatened. So do I then build a story out of this? My peace well, is being threatened? No, not necessarily. But if, if, if you drew, closed your eyes and, and did a drawing thinking of something that you have as a concern, and you opened them and there was this beautiful circle that you didn't realize you even made next to a triangle that is almost piercing the circle, it would be logical and maybe intuitive as well to think, that circle is about to be punctured by that triangle, right? It may give you a feeling. So this, what, what you do is looking at the space, the lines, the negative space, the positive space, um, just go over what things feel like. And you might say, well, the circle makes me feel peaceful, but why? Why? So then you have to go into that and go a little deeper. And then why does the triangle make me feel threatened? Why threatened? Maybe it's just this defined in a way maybe it's just a okay i don't interrupt you but i I do want to pursue this so now i'm going to ask why on a circle and instead of allowing my analytical mind to answer that i'm going to do another drawing no but you might stay with this for a little bit longer because the next thing would be to say what does it mean to me personally have does it relate to anything in my life have I had a feeling of peace ever that was then interrupted by something dangerous or threatening? And if I have, when and which one comes to my memory first? And, and so usually, like, if, if an image like that comes up and, and they're side by side like that, and I say, gosh, you know, um, to the client, there's this circle, you know, it looks real peaceful and complete and whole, and then there's this sort of jagged triangle First of all, I think of triangle relationships where there's a third party, and that, that opens up a whole lot of other questions. But, but if it feels threatening, I might just share, I would just share that. And it, usually people, they know exactly what it, it means. And if they don't, and they sit there and try to think, and it doesn't mean anything, then we move on. And sometimes people later will say, now I know what that was. Because usually some of these things are very universal. Almost everyone's had a whole complete peaceful moment and have it interrupted by something threatening so it isn't that we haven't had it or have it's it's which one matters to to look into more deeply like how can i revisit an event that might then free me a little bit and make me feel a little better does that make sense it does uh, I guess where I where I am is I think, you know, you've opened the intuitive side. You've done this uh, stream of consciousness. That's what you call it, uh, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Well, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, this free-flowing, you know, uh, drawing. And that's all been the intuitive side of you. And then you're looking at it and you begin to, 
evaluate it. And initially, because you you've switched hemispheres, if you will, you're primarily now in in that right brain for most of us right-handers. And, uh, you know, as, as you begin to look at the uh, material, you begin to feel what it means to us. Now, you stop me if I say anything that's incorrect, okay? But okay. I, I begin to feel it, and then as I feel it, I, I, I see possibilities that I, I need to pursue, so... I then begin to question why I have this feeling about this circle or where it came from. And now I find that that seems to be a shift from the right brain to the left brain because I suddenly begin to become much more analytical about it. So my question was really is, is there a point where we can overanalyze this kind of material and maybe we'd be better off asking the question of the circle by literally pursuing your process of intuitive making marks to see if we didn't get a second picture, a second lens that was also intuitive about that first question. Does that make Um, any sense to you? Yeah, let me just start with, I think that we use both sides of the brain through the whole process. Okay. You're lo- you know, it's logical. You pick up the pencil, you know, you know you're about to make marks on paper, and then you look at it and you see what it means to you. But it's about consciousness. It's, we're unconscious of a lot of things that influence us, like memories, you know, things that we've gone through. They can influence us every day, and we don't realize it. And, and we don't know that maybe I've, I'm switching jobs, and I don't even know what job I'm going to. And, you know, I've got to figure out how to make a shift here. And then all of a sudden you see the circle with the triangle, and then you realize it reminds you of something. It may not be logical, logical at all. It might just looking at it reminds you of a feeling or a memory that isn't actually necessarily logical. It just make you. It might make you say something like, "That reminds me of that kid in fourth grade I used to sit next to." I don't know why it does, but it does. And then you have to go into that a little bit. And it is analytical, but it's not about being analytical and better at being analytical. I don't think it really. It's about just being conscious of things that have happened to us and how we feel about them and how they may actually influence current situations and perceptions. Okay. So if you're held back by a, a wound or a memory, you know, and you don't even realize it, then you get a little freer in your current situation, I think, in order to create yourself going forward. All right. How important is color? Well, color is great. I love color. Um, when I go into these, I try to, um, I see in color kind of, you know, really like my dreams are all in color unless they're, very interestingly not, you know, and I remember those that are black and white, but they're always in color. I get a sense of color. Um, it's hard to color these in, actually, because there are so many different ways that I'm seeing them that I have to choose which one to color in, and then it could take all day. But I think coloring in these helps, and I especially colored in a lot of them in the book so people could see how it was I was seeing into the drawing. If I didn't shade them in or color them in, you might not be able to see why I saw the, you know, shape there that looks like a horse to me. Um, so does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Perfect. Yeah. So 
let, let me ask you this then. Um, you share several types of intuitive drawings in your book, like mm-hmm. nervous memory, uh, an angry memory. I mean, you even have a meditation uh, technique that you teach with, you know, using making marks. Give us some examples of that and, and flesh out for us um, how they might, you know, uh, actually provide insights that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get using a different technique. Okay. Like, let's go to visit upon the memory thing since I keep bringing it up. It is so powerful. If you If you do one of these dream drawings, consciously choosing a memory um, mm-hmm. to explore, um, interesting things happen, I think. It is a form of meditation, and then you get some surprises usually. What I find is, let's say I'll, I'll pick a certain memory, um, like this one that's in the book. Uh, this person wanted to do a happy memory, wanted to remember something happy, so she consciously chose a memory of when she found a $20 bill on the playground when she was a kid. And so she was drawing, thinking of that. But then while she was drawing, a whole other happy memory welled up in her. And it really was powerful for her. It was a memory that she just hadn't really consciously visited upon in a while. And it was uh, about when she was younger and she was swimming in the ocean with her brother. Something about the freestyle drawing, I guess, put her back in the waves and, and the happiness. And I think she was missing her brother and that relationship. And so, you, you know, it's, it's a doorway to more, you know, to more discovery. Um, I think it's, I like to use them also even for dreams. You know, like if you have a dream and you didn't understand what it meant or you wanted to understand it better. Um, it, it seems odd to draw, stream draw based on a dream, but I think it really is fascinating, um, you know, when I've tried it. Because uh, a dream is like a little mini movie, and it maybe has, has certain things in it, and a drawing is a whole other thing, and you're not drawing the dream out. You're closing your eyes and just remembering and feeling the feelings in the dream. And then you look at it and see whole other things. When I did this, you know, um, when I have done it, I've found that I got connections that I wasn't aware of that were important for me to be aware of. Yeah. How interesting. Let me ask you this. I mean, you know, uh, every dream teacher out there will tell you, if you want to understand your dreams, get a journal and keep a journal of your dreams. As soon as you wake up, write it down. You know, and and anticipating this show, I decided now I'm not just going to sit at my desk and fool around. (laughs) So I've got a journal, and I'm I'm going to begin to do your stream drawings and keep it in a journal. Is that a good idea? That's a brilliant idea. You can get a journal. You can buy a blank uh, sketchbook like I do from an art store or use a folder with just loose-leaf paper. But I think it's great. I'm really big on journaling because I think journaling helps us get that third third eye view, bird's-eye view, um, third-person view, I guess I should say. You know, we get out of ourselves a little. Right. And, and looking at these drawings is similar because you, you do an, an act you remember, you do a, a creative act, and then you gaze at it, and that puts you in the observer role. And, yeah, I mean, if you start having dreams that you immediately record as soon as you remember them when you wake up, then you want to do a stream drawing based on one, then what you would do is later on, or you could do it right, you know, whenever you want, but consciously 
right at the top of the paper or on the, on the back or something that you are consciously stream drawing to get more insight about that dream. And then draw with your eyes closed using the non-dominant hand. And then when you open your eyes, look into it and see what comes up in the way of imagery. And it may bring you so many other images and associations, but it's kind of fascinating when it connects with, with the dream and some of the energy and some of the imagery in the dream. It's just totally unrelated in some ways, and yet there's a bridge between them. I don't know. I found it fascinating. And I, it, it may be worth entire... playing with. I find the entire subject fascinating. It's a it's a it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it to all of you out there. Elaine, in about thirty seconds, tell everybody how they can learn more about you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, I've got my open sketchbook, spiritual open sketchbook, exploring all these things, and it's illuminara dot com, i l l u m i n a r a dot com, and you can send me a, a message right through the site. And I'm on Facebook, Elaine Clayton on Facebook, and I have an Illuminara page on Facebook as well. And I do readings in New York City and Reiki there as well, and in Connecticut if you're in the tri-state area or if you're in coming to the Northeast. I'd love to, you know, meet you. And, and I am thrilled that you took the time to join us today and share with us, and I wish you the very best with your book. I love what you're doing, and I'm going to be... Your student uh, doing my uh-huh. own journaling. Okay. Well, you're my We've mentor, come to the end. Know. We're out of time. Okay. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you did enjoy our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. Until then, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.